0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer
1: San Diego. Welcome, welcome. It's another Pro-America Report. I'm Noah. Thanks for joining me. Ed Martin will be joining you in just a bit. Have no fear, but I'm always in charge lately of the What You Need to Know segment. And what you need to know today is very important. But before we get to that, what's coming up on the show a little bit later on? Some phenomenal interviews. Martin Dugard is going to be joining us, as well as John Moody, author of Of Course They Knew. Of Course They, it's a work of fiction that creatively explores and looks into the horror of a world exposed to a virus and who's to blame. Uh, Some similarities? We'll see. So stay tuned. More coming up on the Pro America Report. But what is most important to me right now to let you know about is joy. And we're approaching the Christmas season, and I can think of no better thing to get in tune with than feeling joy and feeling bountiful and feeling happy. So I thought to myself... Who could I have on? It's pretty easy. The ambassador of joy, Barry Shore. Now, Barry's a man that overnight, unfortunately, was completely paralyzed, a rare disease, made his life 180 degrees from what it was. But then, instead of, you know, crying over spilt milk, which is, you know, I mean, that's probably as bad as it can get. He went on a mission instead to build a system to enable you to live Enjoy and not just joy, but to live in joy daily. So I thought let's bring him on to the show. The amazing Barry Shore, and this is gonna be an acronym-filled show. As we all know, Barry stands for beautiful, amazing, resounding, remarkable youngster.
2: Good day, beautiful thousands of beloved immortal beings and good looking people. Now, Noah, how can I make the categorical statement that all the thousands and tens of thousands of people listening to us are all good-looking, because if they consciously tuned into PAR right now, that means they're always looking for and finding the good. That's a good-looking person. No matter what the circumstances, always looking for the good, and you will find it.
1: Geez, he keeps up the acronyms, Pro-America Report, P-A-R. We're going to get into a couple more as we go through the interview. But real quickly, tell us what happened to you many moons ago. If people haven't heard your story, Barry, uh, that could have made you bitter and a sour person. But instead, it helped you become the ambassador of joy and mental health advocate you are today, living in what we call the fourth dimension.
2: Imagine this, talking about the fourth dimension, (laughs) imagine... In the morning, hail and hearty, able to leave tall buildings in a single bound. And that evening being in the hospital, Noah, as you said, totally, completely paralyzed. Not an automobile accident, not a spinal injury, a rare disease which I never heard of the day before. Took over my body, became a quadriplegic. Nothing in my body moved. 144 days in hospital, two years in a hospital bed in my own home, I couldn't turn over by myself. Four years in a wheelchair. I had braces on both my legs, my hips to my ankles, and that was progress. And today, thank God I'm able to be vertical and ambulatory with the help of a seven foot walking wand, but I still cannot walk up a curb by myself. I can't walk up a stair by myself. I have helped 12 hours a day, seven days a week, but you hear my voice, positive, purposeful, powerful, pleasant. And it's all because of one word, Noah, and that word is smile. SMILE, SMILE, because SMILE is an acronym, an acronym that stands for seeing miracles in life every day. When you look for the miracles in life every day, you will find them in one better time of the year than right now in the midst of the miraculous, the most miraculous of all beautiful things. And so that's how I became the ambassador of joy, despite the situation to be completely, totally paralyzed.
1: I'll tell you what, when you can find even a small reason to smile every day, if you're breathing, if you're getting up, if you have loved ones around you, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, there's work to do, but you do have reason to smile. Now, Barry, go to BarryShore.com as we speak to Barry, by the way. Barry, tell us about going mad. I know people are like, what are you talking about? Christmas season? You want me to go go mad? No, 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 no. Why would I want to go mad during the Christmas holiday?
2: Yeah, so this is wonderful. So when I have the opportunity to speak to people, whether it's right now for tens of thousands, or I'm doing it on my podcast for millions of people around the world, and I urge people to work with the three fundamentals of life, and these are, Noah, Number one, life has purpose. And when you recognize that, you lead a purpose-driven life. And number two happens. Now, this is a good number two. And that is you can go mad. Now, mad is an acronym that stands for make a difference. You lead a purpose-driven life, you make a difference. And the third is to uncover and unlock the power in the secrets of everyday words and terms, like we just said, smile, seeing miracles in life every day. Or one of the newest ones that we created that people are loving is Dog poop. Whoa, Barry, what's
1: going on? Dog poop. Ooh.
2: Did Barry sure say dog poop? Yes, because dog poop stands for doing of good power of one person. The genius of the, of the season, Noah, is that one person makes a difference. And when you focus on doing of good and you recognize that you as one human being can make a difference, you can go mad. We together one person at a time, reaching out his hand, her hand, his hand, her hand, we change the world. We bring joy to the world because that's where we are right now. And all of this, by the way, is designed to make you happier, healthier, and wealthier. And I guarantee it.
1: It's a guarantee that I think you never have to worry about, you know, giving money back or, you know, giving anything back because everybody wants to be happier, not just this time of the year, but Barry, it's a 365 kind of thing. Now, we're not going to get political, but I am going to make an analogy. Congress just raised the debt ceiling, which is is frustrating to me as a observer of the news, because while they're they're using money that they don't have. And, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Print, 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 print. And I certainly don't operate that way. Barry doesn't operate that way. You don't operate that way. But one can never, ever print too much happiness. So, Barry, tell us about the non-political joy deficit in America right now and how we can fix it and print millions of smiles around the world.
2: Right, because we have a joy deficit. Everybody knows we're in the midst worldwide, especially in our country right here in our own homes, in our own circle of friends. Wherever we are, there's a a malaise that's hanging over the country because of the pandemic. And the last, those words pandemic has the word panic in it. But if you don't want to panic, what you want to do is understand that with joy, which stands for Noah, journey of you, J-O-Y, journey of you. When you resolve to become the best you possible, you make the world a better place. Again, dog poop, power of one person, doing of good. One person raising up another, raising up another, raising up another. We can have a joy surplus without printing trillions of dollars by every person seeing miracles in life every day. Or, as my eight year old niece said to me the other day, Uncle barry can we spell smile? S M I E L. And I thought about it. I said, wow, smile sounds the same. Why not? How's, how come? She says, because then it would stand for seeing Miracles in Everyday Life. That's an eight-year-old. Wow. And if you allow me, wonderful Noah, I'd like to share three things that everybody can do every single day, especially now, and we can literally change the face of the planet yeah, one person at a time. Three let's, things. Number let's do one, it. Number one, right now, from now until, let's say, middle of January, every single week, call three people. Pick up the phone, call three people. I didn't say text. I didn't say email. Call three people. And one of those three people, please, should be somebody that you either think you don't like or that you don't think they don't like you. But so call three people every week and say the following words. Hey, did I tell you today how much I appreciate you? That's it. When you do that, you're changing the vibration of the world. Three people every week for the next five weeks. Just let's say, I'm going to do it. Three people. And then you'll probably do it even after that. That's number one. Number two is to, I urge everybody, use the two most powerful words in the English language three times a day, consciously and conscientiously. And the two most powerful words in the English language are thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks stands for to harmonize and network kindness. Everyone, everyone you meet, He's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Therefore, be kind always. Keep inspiring noble deeds. That's what kind stands for. Three times a day, consciously, conscientiously. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for allowing me to be here. And thank you to everybody listening. Thank you to my wife for preparing an amazing lunch today. Say thank you three times a day, consciously, conscientiously, And we will be spreading the two fundamentals of life. Love and gratitude love and gratitude. and by the way noah on my site like you said barryshore.com e-a-r-r-y-s-h-o-r-e is a free gift right now this time of the year free gift how to slay stress and be happy just get all the value absolutely free go get it watch the videos they're wonderful and then noah's going to tell you about my book
1: Yeah. And that's the third thing that's actually going to make your life better in so many ways. It's something that's going to speak joy and happiness into your life. He's got this new book, The Joy of Living, how one fine Christmas individual, Barry, can get this and they can go mad and make a difference. What's in store for them if they go to the website, if they pick up the book, if they share it with their family, what are they going to find real quickly within The Joy of Living?
2: You're going to discover the 11 strategies for learning to live in joy daily, no matter the circumstances. You can do it. Remember, this show is all about you. It's not, no, no, not about Barry. It's about you becoming happier, healthier, and wealthier, guaranteed.
1: That is perhaps the best thing that you can do. You want to guarantee unhappiness? Pick up the book, start going mad and making a difference. Uh, Before we close with Barry, stay tuned. We're going to be having two great interviews coming up, Martin Dugard and John Moody on the Pro-America Report. But what most people don't know, before I leave Barry Shore, again, go to BarryShore.com, find out all things Barry Shore, the ambassador of joy. He is a mental health advocate, and I want you to pick up his book the joy of living. But we always end the conversation, Barry, and today's going to be no different. I need a big, huge hug.
2: And you're going to get it, and everybody should know. Hug, take this with you into the holiday season. Hug stands for heartfelt, unlimited giving. Here we go, Noah. One,
1: One, two, two, three. three. And he always hugs longer and deeper than I do, Barry Shore. I love you, brother, and I want you to have the most merriest of Christmases ever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No, thank you, Barry. <laughs> Noah here <laughs> you, on Noah here on the Pro America Report. It's Barry Shore. Go to Barry dot com. Stay tuned. More on the Pro America Reports coming up. proamericareport.com <laughs>
3: Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Been looking forward to uh, talking to our next guest. He was on the program a few months ago. Martin Dugard is a New York Times bestselling author, number one New York Times bestselling author. He's written um, uh, the the killing books with Bill O'Reilly, but he's written his own books, uh, a number of books, as a historian. Uh, excuse me. Go to martindugard.com, to find out more. But the reason I have him on is back when we had him on a few months ago, he was finishing up a book called Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City of Lights, and that book is now out as a of september 7th i think it was so welcome back martin to the program congratulations on the book i've read most of it my listeners know i try to read them i've been about 85 percent of it it's really interesting compelling and um, so congratulations
4: hey well thanks very much i really appreciate you having me back on
3: So first, before we get to the book, let me tell you, I know my listeners know I read the end and then I I read the beginning and then the end and check things out. In this case, when I read when I read the end, I got to the part where you were acknowledging uh, things, your notes, not the acknowledgments, the notes. And you described how this book was written during covid. And so you didn't get to do all the travel to go do the books. So what I want to ask you is now you've written a lot of books and you've um, you know, you've know, done a bunch of stuff in person and visited. Is this a new model? Can you write these kinds of books with the aid of technology? You
4: know, I'd pre- prefer not to. Uh, to be honest, you know, what uh-huh. I set out to do is I'm very passionate about history, so I set out to write a very fast-paced, detail-oriented history book, something that people, like we turn the pages like a, like a Jason Bourne thriller, and then when COVID set mm-hmm. not I couldn't, I couldn't do the number one thing i do, which is travel to places and, you know, smell the air and look at the way of the land. But I think because, you know, so I ended up doing, like, Google Maps. I ended up uh, relying on old notes, from, like, over the Tour de France. But I think I mm-hmm. actually overcompensated with the detail because I took the deep dive down through archives and news, old newspapers and, you know, YouTube videos of life during the war. So, If anything, it taught me a brand new way to research, but I don't want to do it again. I really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy happy with the way the book turned out. But uh, I'm actually right now uh, in London going to Paris tomorrow to see the places I couldn't see while writing the book just to kind of
3: back it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's, that's, fa- that's great. Well, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, Martin Dugard, again, the book is Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City of Lights, available everywhere you buy, uh, b- buy books. A question on the, on the form. uh, where you mentioned a little bit, the fast pace. I-, I was looking at the chapters. Many of the chapters are, you know, four pages, five pages, six pages, and, and that's, um, uh, that's a style shift. I mean, that, it, it, you know, used to be these history books you read back and read, like Barbara Tuckman, if that's how you say her name. Some of those chapters yeah. go on for fifty or seventy-five pages. That this is an intentional thing. Is is it a storytelling device? Is that really how it works for you? Well, it really is because
4: I think that history is is just a great story, and history should not read. I mean, I love Barbara Tuckman. I love David McCullough. I, I mean, I love I love mm-hmm. history. Period. But. If I read a history book and I start falling asleep reading a history book, I don't want to put the book down, but I I inevitably do because I can't keep my eyes open. So I (laughs) want to use the same techniques that that a good thriller writer would do. So short chapters, uh, cliffhanger endings, a really vivid opening to the next chapter, and then as much detail, you can't fake detail, so as much detail in between so that the reader, you know, and plus present tense, so the reader feels like they are there. I want to put people right in the moment didn't right in the history gets to know these characters feel like they know them just as well as I feel like I know
3: them. Yeah, it does. It works well, and I, I guess the funny thing is when you see it work, you say, "Why didn't everybody do that?" It's just compelling. All right, <laughs> now the, set the stage here. Set, set the stage here. It's May nineteen forty, and Paris is is overrun by the Germans, which people didn't expect to happen as fast as it did. And and the, here's the thing that people don't—I don't think Americans realize—it it went from uh, nineteen forty through forty four. Um, you have Paris occupied. And what I, I loved about this was all the main, not all, but many of the main characters of that period of history are sort of weaving in and out. You got FDR, you got De Gaulle, you got Patton. They're all weaving in and out. But what about this, this group of, um, sort of the resistance I, i've heard about the more out in the countryside i don't think i ever heard until this book about inside paris and how um successful were they historically like some of the american you know the jedbergs we've talked about you know two-thirds of them were executed where, where was the resistance um by the time the war's over are there many people left to tell the story firsthand or is it mostly historical
4: well, the thing I loved, that I fell in love with, about the resistance is the fact that these were not militarily trained. These are not people who were given arms by uh, France or by America or Britain. These were regular citizens who were so patriotic and so full of fervor about the country that they rose up organically. They didn't know that other people were doing it. They did it on their own, and only later did they find out that there were chunks of them doing it. And the sad thing is, is a large percentage of them were captured were sent east on a a train for Auschwitz or some other death camp. A lot of them were shot by German firing squads. Um, And the the, the funny thing is that because there were a lot of collaborators in Paris during the war, people who, you know, should have been pro-France but instead were helping the Germans because it benefited their own cause, and they didn't know how the war was going to end up. But at the end of the war, these same people kind of claimed to have been part of the resistance when they weren't. So that caused a lot of stuff at the end, but... I'll tell you, I have nothing hmm. but admiration for the resistance and, and these people. And you know, the big revelation for me—not just wasn't just that they're regular people, but about fifty-fifty, it was women. So we had huh. we had the female spies, we had female saboteurs, and again, these people had no training. They just were just uh, passionate about doing it right.
3: Hmm. We're talking again with uh, Martin Dugard. His book is "Taking Paris: The Epic Battle for the City of Lights." Uh, lots in there. Hey, I want to ask you about the the the, the, the 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 um a chapter where you're describing um the American envoy. Uh, his name I, I pronounce it Bullet. Is it Bullet? It's spelled Beulet, yes, bullet, Um yeah. Who is uh, yeah? And that and that because what I was reminded of is uh, one of my favorite books in the last I don't know ten years is by Alex von Tosselman about um about it's called Indian Summer and it's about in August. Uh, of 1947, Dickie Montbatten, who is the f- prominent uh, British uh, uh, ambassador, I guess, just kind of parties, and, and while they transfer all the British Empire gives up India, and and the image here in this in this chapter, you're in Paris, France, bombs are dropping on uh, on Paris, and and they're still having a meal, a- and and I guess the point is. Is that human nature like is that what's happening everywhere it feels like it's the that era where you know don 't interrupt the it's meal like that. Well, that may or may not be the bombing here, and Obama actually hits the hits the uh, hits the room they're in there and then they decide well they will put off the meal it's a kind of is that a different era or is that just human nature? I mean I love those stories
4: I th- you know what I think it's a little bit of human nature because you know Bill Bullitt was a really cool dude I mean I developed a huge um, affection for him it, because you know when you write about people. You, you get to know them. You get to admire their strengths, their weaknesses, and he was—he was the real deal. So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm standing outside a restaurant and that's a, a motorcycle. No, that's but, okay. But here's the
3: deal. <laughs> a,
5: um,
4: But the same, you know, the, the Parisians never thought Paris was going to fall, um, so they stayed way too long. They eventually fled in a panic just days before the Germans arrived. Well, guess what happened? That just happened in Kabul a few weeks ago. People waited too long. I was long. just going to ask you. They, yeah, they knew it was time to get out. Instead getting out when they could have, they stuck around and they um, they ultimately paid for it with this this panic exam that cost a lot of people their lives.
3: Uh, Martin Dugard, the book is Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City Lights. Just have a minute or two left, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, It's a great book. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, When uh, Kabul fell, um, and in in the case of Kabul falling, probably was predictable, uh, but Paris, as you write in the book, no one expected it to fall, and then no one expected it to be occupied for four years. It kind of wasn't imaginable, I guess, at the time. One of the problems it feels like today is people can't imagine, uh, I'm going to say Americans, Americans can't imagine things being being worse you know it, we, you know there's a range of what our imagination can fit into us and then you watch kabul happen and you wonder uh, it, it does does am i wrong about that is, is the modern person sort of not having imagination about you i mean paris paris the city that was a dominant city for say it was just rolled and occupied for four years
4: you know you know what people forget too is uh the french army was one of the top armies in the world period at the time. They had more munitions, they had more men, they had better tanks, um, so nobody thought they were going to fall. The United States was the 17th most successful army in the world at the time, behind Romania, so nobody thought that you know the French army would fold like they did, and I just think it just shows we can't take our democracy for granted. I just think that you know, can you imagine an, an army advancing on New York or Chicago and how it'd behave?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: At first, you know, right. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't believe it was possible, but in, at the end, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but at the same time, that's what happened to Paris. It's the same, uh, it's the same catastrophic, catastrophic fate.
3: Yeah, it is. A, it's a great book. So, uh, Martin Dugard, I, I will let you go. Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights, uh, anywhere you buy books, it's available. And also his website, which is really interesting to read about his work and his writings, <laughs> martindugard.com. Uh, thank you for the time, Martin. Keep writing, and good luck in Paris. That'll be uh, fun for you to see those places you are writing about.
4: And it's it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it very much.
3: Okay, you're very welcome. All right, we'll take a break. Everybody, be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. I'll put this up over on social media. Be right back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I've been really looking forward to talking to this next gentleman. He's an author, and we'll talk about his book uh, a bit. Um, but I, well, I will talk about it a lot. It's called uh, Of Course They Knew, Of Course They... Dot, 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 about uh, a fictional sort of uh, uh, description of the... Uh, pandemic and, and the, what happened. We'll get in a minute. But uh, John Moody also is joining us. He's the author. He has, I, don't, I was looking at it, John, trying to add it up. I don't know, 35, 40 years of experience in media. So before we get to your book, John, and I want to ask you about your observations. You've been at, I don't know, I think I saw UPI at the beginning, Time Magazine, Fox News. You've been at uh, kind of um, online uh, news services over these many years. What's your description of the state of news in this country it's it's see I, I i rant about it but i rant about it a different way than some people john i say the power of the news and big tech has never been stronger they're able to frame things and force a narrative on us but your perspective must be something after i don't know almost four decades
5: well i mean as far as the four decades on my resume i just couldn't hold job that's all um <laughs> but um but uh, to, to, to put it in one word ed uh, corrupt The media in the United States is corrupt now, and it's been corrupted by, of course, money and consolidation and things like that. But um, it's also convinced itself, the news media has, that it's supposed to play an activist role in American politics. Now, Hmm. you know, reporting on politics is one thing. Uh, Getting involved and pushing one party or candidate or cause is another. And that's what we're facing these days, and it's a shame.
3: Uh, and we're talking with uh, John Moody and maybe to to uh transition to the book your book which is uh, again a fictional it's a, it's a novel it's a, but it's a, uh, the topic is uh on the pandemic and uh so the book is called of course they knew of course they dot 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 but one aspect of the pandemic has been that there hasn't really been i think disciplined serious news coverage of some of the things that we've heard. For example, we still don't really have a sense, a, a, an authoritative sense, of what happened in the Wuhan lab or what happened with the WHO and the, and the timing. No one's just written that. And it's it should be like the, a great big story someone should want, and we don't know.
5: Well, that, that's right. Now, of course, um, and, and yes, it's, this is a novel, and it is fictional, and and I created fictional characters, but I put those fictional characters into real life situations. Uh, all of us have gone through the pandemic over the past 18 or so months, and I put right. four different characters from different parts of the world into the story and let them let let them tell their own their, their own tale. Um, yeah, we don't know about what happened in the Wuhan Lap. Well, the Chinese won't let anybody in. They won't cooperate. They're telling lies. They have tried to turn the issue around so that it was – the virus was created by the U.S. military and dropped over China. I don't think that really happens very much. I I don't think too many U.S. military planes (laughs) fly over China dropping things. Um, (laughs) Right. And so so it's just been an iron wall of of stubborn refusal on the part of the Chinese, um, which is the first half of the title of the book. Of course they knew what was happening. Now, um, in terms of the WHO, the WHO is uh, very heavily influenced by China. Uh, China contributes to the WHO, and it also contributes members of the WHO who uh, who follow the Chinese Communist Party line. And it is a, a worldwide organization in theory, but I don't think there's any single one member of the WHO with more power and authority than China. And that's probably why President Trump took the United States out of the WHO for a while. We're back in now. uh, And we're playing catch up to China again.
3: We're talking with John Moody uh, after a career in uh, television news and, and reporting. He's uh, written a book now. Of course they knew. Of course they knew. Now, John, setting it up, um, unhappy Chinese virologist. This is the one I like, uh, I'm most interested in about how you came to understand this. A master seamstress who thinks Italy should be for the Italians. Many people don't realize that northern Italy, a uh, large swaths of the north there, have become dominated by Chinese business uh money that came in and bought businesses and then brought in workers right so tell us a little bit about that and how you wove that into the uh into this story why it's important
5: well i lived in italy for a couple of years ed and um i, I know what happened up north uh the it has to be said that some of italy's major companies were mismanaged over the years and i probably won't come as a surprise to appeal to a lot of people uh however what they did is they sold either controlling interests or sold complete 100% interest to Chinese companies, which were only too happy to pay. And they did pay a uh, big bucks, big, big lira, if, it, if you will, uh, to get control of these Chinese companies. What they then did was brought in Chinese labor, who obviously were going to work for much less than skilled Italian craftsmen would have done. And they, it, it's also not often mentioned, the, but, You know, when you bring Chinese labor over to Italy, uh, you kind of tell them, now, you've got relatives back home. Do what we tell you, or things could go very badly for them. That's a standard Chinese operating procedure, and it worked in Italy. Now, unfortunately, uh, the Chinese—tens of thousands, by the way—of Chinese who were working in the garment industry, in the uh, fabric industry um, came over. Some of them, apparently— brought some of the the virus over. I mean, they went home to see their relatives. Then they came back and they were sick and they spread it. And Northern Italy became the epicenter of the European uh, pandemic for a while.
3: Right, right, and and that and, and that's not, and that's not covered or described in any. I mean, I, there were some articles early on about that. And uh, all right, so how did you come to write this book? I guess you were always a writer in the sense that you were doing reporting and writing, although you were in executive position too. But how did you how'd you decide to write this book? Were you stuck in the pandemic too and thought I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna figure out how to make a a message out of this? Well, it,
5: it, good question. Um, I I was not stuck in the pandemic the way so many of our of our fellow citizens were. I was not in the United States for most of the time, but that gave me, uh, I think, perhaps a better view of what was uh, a, a top level view of what was going on. 2020 was one of the most bizarre years, I think, in American history. We had at least three major events happening. We had the pandemic, which spread faster than anybody ever imagined that it could through the United States and killed more people than we ever imagined possible. We had the social protests that were going on in a lot of our cities. And I think the violence that came out of those shook up a lot of Americans and, and really made them question what was going on in the country. Uh, and then um, third was the election season. I mean, the the 2020 election was unlike any other. Uh, the campaign was, was nasty and down and dirty on both sides. Um, the election itself was... Pretty, pretty, pretty strange. And then the post-election claims of of, uh, illegitimacy of the the winner, uh, again, shook up America and just made them say, what is going on in the greatest country in the world when we can't even decide who's won an election? So I tried to take all I tried to take those three threads and pull them together and weave a story that tried to explain through the lives of ordinary, unfamous people what was going on.
3: Again, we're talking with uh, John Moody, and uh, John Moody is the publisher's Brick Tower Press. The book is just out in sub- earlier in September, I think September eighth. Of course, they knew. Of course, they dot dot dot. John Moody's the author. Available wherever you buy books. Uh, when you, what's what's your do? Do you have a sense that you that the Chinese regime did it on purpose? I mean, would you can you get that far, or can't we really tell that that they did it on purpose? It, 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 what's your thoughts?
5: I I, I don't know. Uh, That's the simple answer. I don't know if they did it on purpose. I do know – well, I do suspect that a lot of the research at the Wuhan lab lab, was done in laboratories with low-level security. Um, There are a couple – the the Wuhan uh, Biological Institute is a seven-story building. Uh, It happens to be, I guess, I guess by coincidence, uh, very near the wet market where they sell live animals for food and and whatnot. The, The workers at the Wuhan Virological Lab are very badly paid. And I think that it is entirely possible, though I cannot prove it. I think it's possible that a worker trying to stretch their money a little bit took one of those animals out of the lab, sold it at the market. And it was one of the ones that had been infected with the virus. And from there, we all know what happened. Um, hmm. the, the controls at the Wuhan virological Laboratory were insufficient for the power of the, of the different materials that they were working with. And, you know, three million lives later, we, we now wish that that hadn't happened.
3: Uh, John Moody again, his book uh, which is just out about two weeks ago. Of course, they knew. Of course, they dot 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 about a pandemic and about uh, uh, what would happen. It's interesting. Uh, Newt Gingrich, who who loves writing kind of historical novels too, has a big blurb on yours. Uh, so that's good. Uh, that's good. Um, uh, that's good backing on that. Uh, John, so but, but let me put a point on it. Will we ever know if we can blame the Chinese regime for it? And maybe differently. Will that ever become something that? I don't know, the government and the people will will come to consensus on in this country?
5: Oh, I don't know what we can come to consensus on in this country anymore. (laughs) uh, I mean, as I as I tried, I think I wrote in one of the chapters, you know, you can't even agree whether the traffic light is red or green um, because it's it's not right to single out a certain color. Um, But no, I don't think we're ever going to know, because the Chinese, go- at least the current Chinese makeup of their, of their government, and the Communist Party, is never, ever going to admit that. The, the Chinese have a word. Uh, it's called denguan yen, and it means the big lie. And it's, it's, a com- it's, it's a phrase that is commonly used, though, of course, nobody says it when they think they're going to be recorded or when they think Big Brother's watching. But it, they know that their own government lies. And what they do is they shrug their shoulders and say, Pfft, not my problem. Uh, Xi Jinping, who's the president of China and the ultimate leader, uh, created something that he called socialism with Chinese characteristics. And you'll see that that hmm. phrase sprinkled yeah, throughout my yep. book. Uh, it was supposed uh-huh. to be uh, a compliment to the Chinese. It sure doesn't look that way now.
3: Hmm. Wow. Yep. That's about right. All right. John Moody, I'm right out of time. Thank you. Uh, I hope the book is doing well. I think it's a great idea, and I hope you're uh, you're very good at uh, communicating about this. So I hope you're getting out there and people are listening. I appreciate it very much. We'll have you back on again in the program. Thank you, sir.
5: Hope so, Ed. Thanks.
3: All right. We'll take a break, everybody. I'll put that up on social media, uh, the uh, the link to that uh, to the book. And, uh, and of course, this interview will be over there, ProAmericaReport.com, too. So you can check that out. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here in a Pro America report Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Well, if you're like my kids, you don't want to hear any talk of uh, Christmas this early. My kids have a, 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 a an, an informal rule that they don't want to hear Christmas music until after Thanksgiving but they don't even want to talk about Christmas stuff like shopping and all until December turns no matter what so this is their rule I don't know why my kids decide to have this rule but that's uh, where they are so but I'm breaking that rule I'm breaking that rule right now because I want to tell you about a very cool opportunity if you go to uh, phyllisschlafly.com I'll put it up on social media there's a link there and there we have a Christmas sale going on now What's very cool about Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly, I mean, not just very cool about her, she was an amazing lady, but what is amazing, one of the amazing things about her is she was an incredible writer. And so we have already published volume after volume of her books. We call them Phyllis Schlafly Speaks, and you go on, on patents, on pro life, on Donald Trump. Uh, all there, and again, you go to this website, you can follow this, also there's um, The First Reader, very popular Phyllis Schlafly wrote a reading manual for children to read back in the day I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago, it's very popular these days, it's called The First Reader and there's a First Reader workbook Uh, you can find that there, you can also there's tote bags, Phyllis uh, Schlafly tote bags, leather uh, padfolio we actually have a copy, Uh, the other day you may remember I appeared on Larry Elder there's um, – Uh, radio show. And in the midst of all the different kind of appearances I made I have acquired over the years some of the key books of folks uh, like Larry Elder. His book is A Lot Like Me out in 2018 in paperback about his relationship with his father. Phenomenal book. You buy that there. We've got some uh, uh, David Horowitz books autographed uh, books that are around. We also have uh, Brian Kilmeade Uh, his book uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pilots. Pilots. Pirates. If you uh, are upset they took down Thomas Jefferson's uh, a statue up in new york city here's a chance this is a great history but anyway all of this is at this website you can go there and check it out lots of books including my uh my co- uh, comic excuse me coloring books can't trump this Kofefe. there's a christmas version uh the most the, the best book i can recommend really important for you to read is Phyllis Schlafly's book, A Choice, Not an Echo, which she updated in 2014. It was a a runaway, uh, multi-sold, I think, almost 2.5 million copies in 1964. Well, all those years later... Uh, um, 50 years later, she published an updated version and it gives you the best description of what's going on behind the scenes in the Republican party and why it's so important to do that. So check it out. If you go, there's lots of gifts about, oh, I want to mention there's also called the turbo reader. Phyllis, when she did the uh, first reader, she then did a, a turbo reader, which allowed people to, uh, uh, a different level of reading. You can get there. So another favorite of mine is who killed the American family. Uh, extraordinary book written in 2014 you should get that and then one last one i'll finish on it's called the supremacist and it's uh, phyllis writing about the importance the tyranny of judges and how to stop it the importance of the fight over judges so a lot there if you go again for christmas all these books there's no supply chain problems (laughs) there's no issues you can sign uh, buy these books now we'll get them to you in just a few days, you'll get them for Christmas, and there really is something for everybody. If you have somebody that loves the pro-life movement, there's really nothing like uh, Volume 3 of Phyllis Schlafly Speaks. It's called, its subtitle is How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life, and it marches through how Phyllis Schlafly was able uh, to um, shape the platform of the Republican party. It's an extraordinary history. It's got a description of, uh, of, of tactics to get it done. It's got description of the people that were against it. It's really great. Um, Another book, by the way, that I recommend uh, to you is uh, if you have somebody who is a young person who's interested in being a speaker uh, and uh, speaking professionally, we put together. In fact, Phyllis picked this out before she died. The very first volume of her uh, writings is called Phyllis Softly Speaks Volume 1, Her Favorite Speeches. She pulled out a set of her favorite speeches, and we published them. And they're on every subject. They're on the military. They're on life issues. They're on patents. They're on the uh, the um, economy Uh, education, uh, one of her favorite topics, of course, the constitution, she writes on that uh, in there. So that's a great one. And I have actually given that book, uh, quite a few times to young people our collegians, uh, or someone that I know that just is interested in politics and policy uh, to show, um, she Phyllis Schlafly was a writer her whole life. And she attributed the fact that she could write, uh, that she wrote well and worked hard at it to helping her think clearly you you cannot be a loose thinker if you're writing all the time. You cannot you just can't do it. And so she attributed that. And she wrote an extraordinary amount uh, in her long life. In fact, if you go to Phyllis dot com, you can see the button for the uh, for the sale. But also, I'd recommend that you go there and you can look at her Phyllis Schlafly reports. Uh, she wrote so many um, essays, so many columns. And so many uh, reports, they called her PS reports. It was a monthly report. I- I- incredible uh, discipline, incredible cl- uh, clarity. And as I often tell people, I can go back and look over the 50-year period where she was writing so frequently. I can go back and look, and I can track down almost any topic, uh, anything that was you know in the news she had written about uh, in some way. And her take is almost always... Uh, not just, it's not that it's unique. She didn't do things just to make it different, but it was, um, she had a way of seeing things uh, that was different than most people. And so you could go and figure that out. So, com to find out more. And uh, you want to sign on and you want to uh, pick up some gifts. And by the way, the proceeds go, of course, to our work, uh, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. So it supports us there. All right. So, there's some Christmas gifts. If you need a gift to thank uh, Noah Dingley, our great producer, you can go there. Or Joanna Spilger, our great producer. Uh, uh, assistant producer who helps book these guests go there and get them a gift you can do it there so uh, more of that on social media thank you for listening we will be back uh, tomorrow it's ed martin here on a pro america report talk to you then
0: this is the pro america report on the answer san diego